Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. What a powerful song they sang uh, as they began for us. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is mighty to save. And what can we say to that except what? Amen. Amen. And so when they contacted me and asked me if I would uh, preach today and, and not only do the baptism, I said, yes, I'd be pleased to do so. And uh, they said, well, we're in the book of Acts. We'll be at the 33rd verse through the 36th verse. And I said, well, give me a few minutes to go and look at that. And then I'll let you know if that works or not. I took one look at it and I said, oh, that works. That works. And so I want you to open your Bibles, if you have them, please, and turn with me to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, and Peter's great sermon, which we are coming to the climax, the conclusion, and his great declaration concerning the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week's message concluded with verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of him we are all witnesses and we continue today with verse 33, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. As you heard in the introduction, I lead an international ministry now called Global Pastor Training. We have developed a series of workshops to equip The 95% of pastors that do not have Bible college and seminary, it's estimated there are 5 million pastors serving the global church of every stripe. Four and a half million or more of them do not have Bible college, do not have seminary, do not have any formal training for their work. And so we go to them with equipping workshops, and as that work is beginning to grow, we are also raising up regional teachers to come alongside and work with them. So as you can imagine, since I stepped down here at CEPC in 2014, I've made a lot of airplane trips, a lot of overseas travel. And a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, I was getting on a plane out of London down to Nairobi. And uh, I always try to get a seat right on the aisle. It's the best place to be on an airplane. You want to be right on the aisle. I was right on the aisle had the reservation all set. I walk onto the plane only to be told, no, Mr. Cremens, your seat is right in the middle of the five-seat row, not just one in, two in, two on either side. And by the way, Mr. Cremens, we're going to be completely full today. So if you don't mind, if you would just take your seat. I was not happy. I was already not happy. So I get, I'm in my seat. I decided to get a book out and just start reading, beginning to think about the ministry coming up and get off my whining about the seat. 
and I'm reading, my head is down, and then I notice a set of men's shoes come into the aisle and then back out. And I, I didn't look up, I just saw it out of the corner of my eye. And then a set of woman's sandals underneath a long black robe come in and then back, back out. And then the next thing I hear, there's some commotion in the aisle right here. And the next thing I know, they've called for the stewardess. And I took a look over, and it didn't take three seconds to realize, oh, they're observant Muslims. They don't want to sit next to the gringo. And sure enough, they were asking to be seated somewhere else. Only they got the same message I got. I'm sorry, sir, madam. There is no other seat to be had in the airplane. You can either take your seats here or you can leave the airplane and we will do our best to accommodate you on tomorrow's flight. They argued for several minutes and then eventually the woman's sandals came in again and then back, back out. More discussion went on. Finally, the man came in. He sat down next to me. The woman sat on the aisle. Then we took off for Nairobi. You can imagine how much conversation and fellowship there was on the way down to Nairobi. And I kept thinking, Lord, what, why, what, what do you want to have happen here? And he was, after, we hadn't spoken, we'd had meal service and all of that, not a word. And then he was watching TV and he got his little remote out from beside his seat and he was working it. And when he got where he wanted to be, he couldn't figure out how to put it back. And after watching him struggle with it somewhat gleefully on the inside, I, I finally reached over. I said, sir, may I help you? And I took the thing and popped it so that it ran back in and he was able to put his little remote back. He turned to me. He said, thank you. And I said, you're welcome. He said, I I see the book by, by the book that you're reading that you're a religious man. I said, well, I am a follower of Jesus. And he said, oh, well, that's great. He said, you know, we Muslims recognize Jesus as a great prophet. I said, yes, I'm aware of that. But of course, Muhammad is the greatest prophet. So, you know, you seem like a very fine man. You should become a Muslim. And I said, uh, well, thank you, uh, but I'm a follower of Jesus. And he said, well, yes, but Muhammad is greater. And I said, well, you say that Muhammad is a prophet. But we say that Jesus is not only a prophet, but that Jesus is literally God come in the flesh. Oh, you Christians, yes, I know all about your three-God theory. I said, no, not three gods. Three persons, one God. And I end up telling him about the Trinity. He said, that's impossible. How can that be? And I said, well, you're one being with one person seated in one seat. I'm one being with one person seated in another seat. And that's the nature of being human, right? And he said, yes, I'm one, just like God is one. I said, wait a minute, wait just a minute. God is one, you're one, I'm one, but who says that God's nature must be exactly like our nature? Who says 
that the one divine being must exist in one person like you exist in your airplane seat and me in my airplane seat. Who is to say that God, one God, cannot exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is exactly what the Bible teaches. Not three gods, but one God, three persons, and that's how the Son can come and redeem a lost and fallen humanity by pouring out his blood on the cross and by rising again from the dead. And at that point, he said, I think I need to get back to my movie. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want you to think about that encounter. And I want you to think about what Peter is saying to the people of Jerusalem on that first Pentecost. Because, friends, until the Holy Spirit speaks to a person's heart, the truths of God's Word remain a mystery. They cannot be acknowledged. They are denied. But when the Spirit works, as we see happening on the day of Pentecost, then the truth is acknowledged and lives are changed. So first of all, let's just think back a bit on what the Holy Spirit's been doing over this passage that you've been studying for these past few Sundays. Peter begins his great message really as a defense and an apology, an explanation for the phenomenon of the gift of tongues that has been poured out on the disciples. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 15, we are told that roughly 120 of them had been gathered together there in Jerusalem. So it's not just the 12 apostles, but it's a a goodly number of people who are praising God, prophesying in tongues, publicly out on the streets, and as a result, the whole city, in effect, of Jerusalem is caught up in an amazing piece of street theater organized by the Holy Spirit. What's Peter's role then? Peter's role is to stand before those people and to explain to them in plain language what it is that's going on. Because even before he opens his mouth, what do they, some of them, what have they already concluded? Oh, yeah, they're drunk. They're out of their minds. And on the strength of that, Peter gets up and says, what? Hey, wait a minute. These guys are not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Come on. Who ever heard of anybody drunk at 9 a.m.? If you partied the night before, you're not up at nine. If you're getting ready to party, it's still too early. Nobody's bombed at 9 a.m. That's, that's his initial opening to these guys. And then he tells them, no, it's not that. It's what? This is what Joel the prophet said, and he begins out of Joel to explain to these people, the Jews, whose prophet Joel was and whose feast of Shavuot or Pentecost in the Greek, they are celebrating on that day, which has now come to ultimate fruition. Christ the first fruits has been raised, and now the Spirit of God has come and blessed His people. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
And so at the great climax of his presentation, he declares, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, verse 33. And let me just pause there, friends, and see if you see what I see there, the very same concept that I was trying to explain to my Muslim seat neighbor on the plains in Nairobi two years ago. Do you see Peter talking there about the Trinity? Do you see it? Look again at the verse. Look again at the verse. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. By the way, did you know that in all the Old Testament you can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times the Old Testament refers to God as Father? But when you come into the New Testament, the New Testament is filled from beginning to end with the familial language of Father and Son, whether you go to the Gospel of John, whether you go to the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, it doesn't matter where you turn. The moment the Son of God comes into the world, He begins to speak, first of all, of God as His Father, and then that language then begins to expand out. It's really amazing. It's really amazing. If you're familiar with Luke chapter 2, the very end of the chapter, that incident of the life of Jesus when He's 12 years old, He goes into the temple at the age of 12. You remember that episode? And His parents are worried because He's left them on the road back up to Nazareth and has gone back to Jerusalem on his own without them at age 12, you'd be worried too, wouldn't you, mom and dad? I certainly would be as a parent if I had a 12-year-old missing. And they come back to Jerusalem that same night, go through the city all that next day, and finally, where do they find him? They find him in the temple, engaged in a dialogue with the greatest thinkers and theologians of the day in the temple. And they say to him, son, what are you doing? And what is Jesus' response? Hey, guy, do you not know that I need to be where? In in my father's house. Now, Joseph was a carpenter, and his house was up in Nazareth along with Mary. Jesus is in Jerusalem, in the temple, So what is he doing at that moment at age 12 other than what? Other than identifying that God himself is his father and he already knows it. He recognizes that reality. And then his whole public ministry is filled from beginning to end with references to the father. The father, all that the father has given me, I have not lost any and will not. Everything the Father tells me, I do, and I do it perfectly. And all throughout the ministry of Jesus, there is this language. And then even more stunning than that, friends, when he begins in Galilee to teach and make disciples, and they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. How does he teach them to pray? What does he teach them to say? What's the opening phrase? Yeah, say it again. And one more time, exactly, not pray this way, dear God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ who art in heaven. No, not even that. 
You pray this way. Pray, our Father who art in hallowed be thine. How, how in the world do you move from Moses the servant to being able to proclaim God as your Father, even Gentiles? How does that happen? It happens through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It happens because the Son has come into the world, and if the Son shall make you free, you are free indeed. If the Son shall set you free, you are free indeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is what we see happening right here in the 33rd verse. All throughout three years of public ministry, as Peter, James, and John, the rest of the disciples, have walked with Jesus. There has never been this clarity of thought. Never been this, hmm, what word do I want? Never been this supernatural grasping in their minds of the realities that Jesus constantly talked to them about. But today, on the day of Pentecost, there is, and why? Because God had promised, the Lord Jesus had promised that when the Holy Spirit came, he would come and they would be filled. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of John, and I would invite you to turn with me there, to John chapter 14, first of all, verse 26. In John 14, 26, Jesus is speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then again in the 16th chapter, John chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And so when we look at Peter on Pentecost, we see a new man filled with the Holy Spirit, given divine wisdom and insight suddenly into three years of public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, such that, such that Peter can stand before the Jewish people who knew of the one true and living God and who knew Deuteronomy, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And there to say before all of them this Trinitarian declaration that had to be as radical to them as it was to that seatmate of mine on the airplane down to Nairobi. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. See, there they are. The Lord Jesus Christ, not only crucified and risen, but now exalted to the right hand of the Father. So you've got Jesus the Son at the right hand of the Father, now having come through his trial, having come through his sacrificial death, having received the resurrection and been received into glory, rejoicing in celebration at the right hand of the Father. The Father now gives in to Jesus the power to pour out the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, upon all those who would follow him. Dear friends, if you have not thought in a while about the nature 
the marvelous, glorious nature of the God we serve. This is a wonderful passage to reflect and meditate upon. Because having held up that Trinitarian picture of God's cooperative work, and you see how each member of the Trinity is involved, the Father in majesty receives his Son victorious. He conveys to him the power to pour out the Spirit. All that the Father has has been given to me. And he then pours out that Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the very stones must cry out. They must cry out. And they do. In every tribe and tongue and language that was there. They're praising God. And then Peter stands up to explain what is happening. And in the process, he makes the first Trinitarian declaration of the New Testament church. And then having done that, he doesn't end there. But notice how he continues. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And just give me a few minutes to unpack those two terms very briefly, Lord and Christ. What does Peter mean when he says that he has made him both Lord and Christ? Because Peter has a very definite thought in mind. He's not just using the title that we so often use, the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's using the two terms in the distinct way in which they would have been used at that time because Christ or Christos is the Greek word for the Hebrew equivalent Messiah. We've all heard Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And the Jews had been taught from the beginning even from Genesis 3.15 and forward, that they should look for one who would to come. That they would, it would be a seed of the woman that would come through Abraham, then would come through Isaac, and then through Jacob, and then through Judah, and then through David. And it would be one of David's descendants who would be the Messiah and sit on the throne of God forever. That's Messiah. One more place I want you to turn with me. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. The very end of the chapter. After the Pharisees have been disputing with Jesus all day, Jesus puts a question to the Pharisees. This is in Jerusalem after the triumphal entry. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, then how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? For he says, and then he quotes Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until he puts your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And that's a great question. It's a great question. You know, where I grew up and when I grew up, uh, my parents taught me to, to use Yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, when I was speaking to them or to other adults as a child. It was a sign of respect, a sign of courtesy. In the same way, this term, Adonai, or Lord, 
is a sign, a term of respect, a term of courtesy. Well, who calls who sir? The father doesn't call the son sir. The son calls the father sir. And so Jesus' point is, if if Messiah is David's son, then why does David call him sir? In Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord, that is to say Jehovah, says to my Lord, my master, my sir, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy a footstool for your feet. Was he to be the son of David? Absolutely. And that's what the Pharisees say. And yet Jesus deals with them in these terms. Why? Because the answer is not complete. He's the son of David, according to the flesh. That's Messiah. That's Christos. But he's the son of God, according to the spirit. And that's Lord. That's kurios. That's the other word that's used there. He has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. That is to say that the divine being, the divine majesty consisting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, having received the Son back in victory and having given him the power to grant the Holy Spirit to all who would call upon him, he is doing so, and he is doing so as the living Son of God as the Messiah, the divine human being who came into the world in order to save sinners and change their lives. And God's still in the life-changing business today. We're also training regional teachers in Pakistan these days. And uh, just a couple of months ago, an extraordinary thing happened for one of the pastors that I'm working with there. He had a Muslim neighbor that knew him come and knock on his door at night. He came to the door, and the Muslim said, I want you to pray for my wife. She has a demon. And my pastor friend in Pakistan said, "Uh, but you're a Muslim. Don't come to me for prayer. You should go to your imam. Let him pray for you. I thought it was pretty bold. And he said, the Muslim neighbor said, but I've been to the imam. And they did pray. And I've been to the soothsayers and all the rest of those people, the spiritualists and so forth. And I've asked them for help. And they couldn't help her either. But one of them said, you need to find a Christian. Only a Christian can deal with this issue. And so I've come to you. I'm asking you to help. And he said, but listen, you do not believe in my Lord Jesus Christ. If I were to help your wife, I would have to pray for her in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You would object to that. He said, not anymore. I need help. Can you help? And so my friend began to witness to him about who Jesus is. Fully human, fully divine Savior. An atoning sacrifice for sin. Risen from the dead that we all might have victory and life and the one who gives the Holy Spirit. And he said to him, if I pray in the name of that one, will you accept the prayer? Will your wife accept it? And will you let me instruct you in these things? And he said, yes. If you can help my wife, whatever it takes. 
And my pastor friend prayed for the woman. The Lord delivered her from the demon she had. However, that was manifesting itself in her life. And every Wednesday night since, they've begun to come to an inquirer's Bible study that this pastor has. And they, they're not yet coming to Sunday morning worship, but they're coming every Wednesday to hear the Word of God and to understand more and more about who Jesus is and who is the God who is mighty to save. He's the greatest. He's the one. And so as we conclude, let us pray and give thanks to that one true and living God for the gift of his divine son, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you do not yet know, but something's touched your heart and you would like to accept Christ today, you can do it right where you are just by talking to God. Prayer is talking to God. And you say something like this. Dear God, I... I admit I'm a sinner. I need help. You sent Jesus to die on a cross to pay for my sin. I open the door of my life and ask you to come in. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Change my life. Help me to be the kind of person you want me to be. If that's your prayer today, God promises that he will come in. He will make you a new person. If I can be of any help to you after this service, I'd be happy to speak with you personally and at length claims of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem all of us who were born under its curse, who were born in Adam, but reborn by faith in Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit be stirring and moving in our hearts and lives Today, throughout this week, and forevermore, in Jesus' name, amen.